Chapter 25 of History of the Norwegian People, Volume 1 by Knut Gjerset. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 25 Iceland and the Faroe Islands. De Hul, an Irish monk living in France, wrote in 825 a work on geography, Liber de Manchura Orbis Terre, in which he describes the islands in the Northern Ocean, which, he says, he has not found mentioned by any other writer. After having described what appears to be Iceland and the Shetland Islands, he says, There are also some other small islands, almost all divided from each other by narrow sounds, inhabited for about a century by hermits proceeding from Ar Scotia, Ireland. But as they had been deserted since the beginning of the world, so are they now abandoned by these anchorites on account of the northern robbers, but they are full of countless sheep and swarm with seafowl of various kinds. The sheep must have been left there by the Irish hermits, and the Norsemen, appropriately enough, called the islands Feriar, Sheep Isles, the Faroe Islands. The Irish monks seem to have come to the islands about 700, and about a century later they had to leave because of the Vikings. The Ferienga saga tells us that Grim Cabin was the first Norseman to settle the islands. This was probably in the early part of the 9th century. When Aud, the widow of Olaf the White, went to Iceland, she stopped on the Faroe Islands to celebrate the wedding of her son's daughter, Olaf. From her descended the Gottesjäger, the greatest chieftains in the islands. After the Battle of Haversfjord, many emigrants from Norway settled in the Faroe Islands. It is not stated that Harald, on his expedition against the Vikings, annexed the islands to Norway, but a little later they are spoken of as a Norwegian dependency. According to Dequil, Iceland was also discovered by Irish monks prior to 795. Frode, the earliest Icelandic historian, who has written a very reliable work in the early history of Iceland, the Islandingabok, says that at the time when the Norsemen first began to visit the island, they found Christian men there whom they called Papa, but they soon left because they did not wish to dwell among the heathens. They left Irish books, bells, and crossiers, from which one must judge that they were Irish. The Landnamabok also mentions these Irish monks, and the name of the island of Pape, off the east coast, still brings to memory their stay in Iceland. Iceland was discovered by the Norsemen in the period 860-870. Arafrode says that Iceland was first settled in the days of Harald Horfagra, 870 years after the birth of Christ, by people from Norway. According to Sturla's Landnamabok, the Norsemen Nadod, first reached the island, having lost his way while on a voyage from Norway to the Faroe Islands. According to the Historia Norwegiae and Hauxlannamabok, the Swede Gardar first discovered Iceland. But neither the story of Nadod nor that of Gardar can be regarded as anything but tradition. A little later than Nadod's and Gardar's reputed voyages, a Norseman, Flokke Vilgardsson, sailed to Iceland from the Hebrides, where Norse colonies already existed. He spent two winters on the island and gave it the name of Iceland. The first permanent settlement was made by Ingolf Arnarsson and his friend Liv Hrardmarsson, who came to Iceland in 874. The Landnamabok says that Ingolf brought with him the pillars of the high seat, Unvegesular, and when he came near the coast he threw them into the sea, and resolved to build his home where they should drift ashore, as he regarded this as a divine omen. He settled temporarily on the south coast, but the next year the pillars were found in Foxe Bay, on the west coast. Here he built a permanent home, calling the place Reykjavik, Smoky Bay, from some hot springs in the neighborhood. This became the site of the present city of Reykjavik, the capital of Iceland. 
The period of colonization, which began in 874, is considered to have lasted till 930, when about 20,000 people were dwelling in Iceland. The emigration from some districts in western Norway was so great that King Harald feared that the country would be depopulated, and collected a tax of five ure from everyone who sailed for Iceland in order to check the movement. The loss to the country must be measured not only by the number, but also by the quality of the immigrants. They were generally the best families, both intellectually and economically the leaders in their communities. Vestlande, which hitherto had been a center of strength, was so weakened that it never again recovered its former importance. When Harald made his expedition against the Vikings in the western islands, a great number of those who had sought refuge there had to flee. They went to Iceland, and with them came a number of Irish and Scotch emigrants. And the widow of Olaf the White and her son Olaf Feiland came to Scotland with a large company of Norse, Irish, and Scotch emigrants. These landnamsmænd, or first settlers, who as a rule were men of wealth and power, came to Iceland with one or more ships, bringing with them their families, relatives, servants, slaves, cattle, household goods, and supplies of various sorts. After having selected a place of settlement, they took formal possession of a large tract of land extending from the mountains to the shore, passing fire around it to show that they had established ownership of it. Inside of this tract, each freeman in the company received his allotment. The system of Odal was not introduced in Iceland. The first settlers took such large tracts that those who came later complained that they had taken too much. King Harald Horfagra was made arbitrator, and he decided that no one should take more land than he and his ship's crew could carry fire around in one day. The chieftains, who claimed large tracts of land by right of settlement and occupation, were an aristocracy who took possession of the soil, while the freemen, who with their consent settled in their landnam, the territory which they had taken, held only a secondary title. The chieftains generally built a temple, Hove, near their home, and the people in the surrounding district became in religious matters a sort of congregation, with the Hove as a center. The chieftain was priest, and managed also the administration of laws and public affairs. He was called Gode, Godi, and his office, Godord, was hereditary. It corresponded to that of Herse in Norway, and it's probable that the title of Gode had also been used there. There were thirty-nine Godord, or chieftains with rank of Gode, in Iceland, and as no general government yet existed, the country was a collection of independent settlements. Each locality had its own laws, borrowed no doubt from the settler's home district in Norway. But the necessity soon made itself felt of having a thing, or general government, where disputes might be settled. Thorstein Ingolfsson established the thing at Kjallarnes, which became a general court for many districts, but it was of little avail, as there existed no uniform system of laws. In 927, a man by the name Ulfljot was sent to Norway to study the Norwegian laws. Aided by his uncle Thorleif Spaka, he prepared a code based on the Gulathing's love, and returned to Iceland in 930. A general thing for all Iceland, the Althing, Old Norse, Allshaljarthing, was now established, and Ulfljot's laws were adopted. This thing should meet every year at midsummer at Thingvellir, near the mouth of the river Urkara, in southern Iceland, for a period of two weeks. The thing consisted in the beginning of the Goder, each of whom was accompanied by two men, making in all 108 members. The All Thing was the highest court of justice, and it dealt also with the more important questions touching lawmaking and general administration. The power was placed in the hands of the Lagreta, which was chosen by the Godar. They also elected a Lov Sigemund, Old Norse Lov Sigemader, who was the head of the Lagreta, and whose duty it was to recite the laws to the assembled thing. This was of great importance at a time when the laws were not yet written or read by the people in general. 
The love Sigamond was elected for life, and his office was the highest in the country. He presided over the thing, but had no administrative functions. The country was divided into four districts, or quarters, each with its own thing. Fjordung's thing, and twelve minor thing districts were established, each having three gordar. The northern district, or Fjordung, had four thing districts, making in all thirty-nine gordard. The island had now become an organized state, a sort of federal republic with a central government created through election, but exercising very limited power, the greatest possible autonomy being retained by the local communities. The fact that the early settlers in Iceland made King Harald Horfagra the arbitrator, in so important a question as the proper distribution of land, shows that although they had left Norway because of his tyranny, they still had confidence in his good judgment and sense of justice. They soon felt their dependence on the mother country, and sought to maintain close relations with it. They seemed to have come to a friendly understanding with Harald, who was evidently planning to extend his authority over Iceland. It appears that they agreed to pay him the five ura tax, Landura, once for all the privilege of coming and going between Iceland and Norway, and they probably acknowledged him as their overlord. In return for this, Harald granted them the right of self-government, and also the right of citizenship in Norway. When they came back to the mother country, they had the Hald's right, the right of a storbunda, or land proprietor. They could join the king's herd, they could own and inherit property in Norway, and could bring suits in the Norwegian courts. Norway had become not only a united kingdom, but in fact an empire with extensive colonial possessions, including, besides the island groups mentioned, also Finnmarken and Iceland, and later the Hebrides, Greenland, and Jemtland were also added. The people in the colonies felt themselves united with the mother country, not only by the strong ties of kinship, language, laws, and customs, but also through commercial and economic interests, and by the privileges which were still theirs in the old home. They were still citizens of Norway, and took pride in recognizing the king and his court as the center of national life. The king came to be regarded by the colonists as the preserver of the strength and continuity of the whole Norwegian people. They felt how closely their life and history were bound up with that of the mother country, and the most complete history of the kings of Norway has been written by the Icelanders. The thriving colonies in Ireland, Scotland, and France must also be regarded as belonging to this greater Norway. The story of the Norwegian colonial empire forms, indeed, an instructive as well as an interesting chapter in colonial history. End of chapter 25